0: Right now, what I want to do before we get into our um, new series for the morning, uh, I just want to remind us, because every now and then we do this, I want to remind us of our mission as a community. And uh, about a year, a little over a year ago, we did the painstaking work of kind of revisiting a decade-old mission statement, kind of dusting it off, saying, man, this worked for us for a long time. We're coming out of the pandemic. Does this still articulate exactly who we want to be and what do we want to pursue as a community? And uh, we decided it needed a little touch-up for a little modernization, so to speak, uh, to better articulate the core values of what it means to be together, to engage and become. So I'm going to throw it up on the screen just as a quick reminder. New community is, I like to say, aspires to be, a place of becoming where together we are committed to extravagant welcome and engaging in the ongoing story of Jesus. And what I think this means for us, I know I'll speak what it means for me, is first of all, I say aspires to be because none of us, and certainly I, have not arrived We're all in process. And so what are we in the process of? We're in the process of becoming. So each and every one of us, which means that none of us have arrived yet. We're all developing, growing, becoming who God intends us to be. And so that requires us to be gracious with one another, to create space for one another, to learn, to grow, to be accepted and loved for who we are. And we are in the process of becoming both personally and collectively the kinds of people that God desires. And so that journey that we're all on is part of what it means to become. I think we also aspire to be a community that welcomes extravagantly. I would say also we're the first to admit that we have a lot of growth to do in that area. We could always be more welcoming, more open, more inclusive And yet, we're striving to remind one another, even like we did this morning, that the invitation to the table is always open to everyone. And we mean everyone. We even mean the people that you don't feel like should be included, because this means embracing difference. This means understanding the body of Christ is quite unique and diverse. It means choosing unity over uniformity. It means leaning into the challenging work of being a community. And this means deferring to one another and loving one another as better than ourselves. Everyone has a seat at the table. We're all invited. The last part of this phrase that I like to think about is this idea that we aspire to be engaging in the ongoing story of Jesus I think we make no apologies whatsoever that we are a community centered on Jesus and the loving, humility-oriented posture of our King. We want to continue to echo that, that we want to embody servant leadership. We want, to the best of our ability, to be a community that fights against this idea that there is spirituality for a small elite or for people who are in leadership and that the rules for them are different than the rules for the rest of us, but rather that we as a community are co-servants and co-reconcilers seeking to embody the kingdom on earth together. And all of that reminds me of our topic this morning, which is this idea of love. We are starting a new series called The Greatest of These. It is a familiar passage you heard, read just a little bit earlier. And the greatest of these is this idea that above faith and hope and anything else, there is the greatest and the greatest is love. And so this morning, what I want to do is just remind us of a few things that are central to this idea, or maybe even to the question, what is love. What is love? And I'm going to acknowledge this right from the very beginning of the series. It's going to go four weeks, and there will probably not be a single idea in all of these four weeks that will be new or revelatory. There will not be something that you go, I have never heard that before in my life. I mean, we're talking about love, okay? For four weeks, you've heard it a million times, And part of the role or responsibility maybe of teaching or of preaching is often to remind people of something that's already profound to them. But to remind them again, why? Here's why. Love is the jewel among the graces of the Christian life. We know it and perpetually forget it. Here's why we need reminded. We forget all of the time, that the center of all that we are about as followers of Jesus is love. We forget all of the time that we are deeply loved. We forget all the time that the Trinity is a perfect relationship of love. So everything you hear over these next four weeks will be reminders. It won't be revelatory, but I think very, very needed. The other thing I want to do before we look at the passage, is to just give you a little bit of a warning, okay? Um, I have been giving talks here uh, for 15 years almost now at this point, point. Um, and I will be completely honest with you, the talks that have gotten me in the most trouble in all of my time at New Community are talks about love and grace, Like, we've talked about some fairly religiously, like, controversial topics. We've done two whole 10-week series on elephants, the elephants in the church nobody wants to talk about. Every one of those is, like, challenging, and we've gotten some comments, we've gotten, but the most of everything has been love and grace. Now... I was thinking about that this week, and I came to one of two conclusions. It's either because every time I'm up here and the subject happens to be the love and the grace of God, I just drop the biggest dud of a talk. And it's kind of like I can't figure out how to say that the creator of the universe deeply loves you and lavishes grace upon you in such a way that it inspires you. And so it's kind of like, oh, this is frustrating. Here we go again. Or the other thing I came up with is it could be that religion has such a tight grip on who we consider to deserve love and who gets free grace. I thought on it a little and I feel it's maybe the latter that we want grace, and we want it to be free. I want it to be free for me, but I want it to cost you a little bit, right? I mean, like I, again, I want it free for me, but, you know, frankly, most of the time, I think I'm a little bit better, a little more deserving, a little more worth it, right? And so, I think, well, you can love me, but you, on the other hand, or grace to me, but grace to you. And so I think, ironically, that we struggle as a religion on how much is God allowed to love and who gets to be loved more or less than others. And so that's some touchy stuff. So I give you that as a warning before we look to answer this question this morning. What is love. And to answer that question, I want to start where I started a few weeks ago when we talked about a different idea, and that is to start with God. I think it's always a good place to begin to think about who God is, and then in light of who God is, us understanding the world and everything around us. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to need your help. If you have a pen or a pencil, writing instrument or a phone where you can write down a few things, what I'm going to do is give you one minute and I want you to write down any characteristic, quality, attribute of God that you can think about, okay? So we'll start off with an easy one. God is love, so there's one, okay? But anything else, you're putting it down on the sheet of paper, in the phone, wherever, write down stream of consciousness. Don't let... Like, you start to, like, examine or question or wonder, well, should I say that about who God is or not? Just write it down. Everything, as much as you can. I'll give you about a minute to do it. Go. Now I know some of you are still typing or writing or thinking and imagining more characteristics of who God is. But I find this exercise, and I want you to hold on the list because we'll come back to it. I find this exercise insightful. And one of the reasons I find it insightful is if you took any group of people and you were to collect all of the sheets that you just wrote down, all the information, you would begin to get a really clear picture of what this section maybe thinks about who God is as opposed to this section and what they think about it. You start to begin to realize that what we write down about God is incredibly personal to who and how we understand God to be in the world. So let me give you some examples. Some traditions, and maybe you grew up in a tradition that speaks and places its priority on the transcendence of God. So this idea that God is other than, God's otherness. So we would tend to write down, if you're from that tradition, things more like God's omnipresence, His omnipotence, his power, his sovereignty, his holiness, everything that makes him completely separate and different and unique than who we are. That's one particular tradition. Another tradition tends to highlight God's nearness. So we speak through ideas related to the incarnation. So God's presence, his proximity, right? His all-knowing nature that he knows us intimately and fully and completely. And so we begin to think about all the things that describe God as very close and intimate with who we are. Others record thoughts about God's justice and truth and wrath and holiness and his exacting nature. While others speak of God's love, gentleness, grace, compassion, forgiveness, and faithfulness. I want you to pause there for just a moment. Look at your list again. And I want you to just jot a quick note to come back to later. We're not going to pause and like spend a lot of time here. I want you to kind of answer this question at another time. What do the ways that you thought about God or what did what you write down, what does that say about your perspective of God? Don't dwell on it now. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about it now. Just put it down so we can think about it later. Okay, put it on a shelf. But what you wrote down, what does that tell you about how you understand and view and experience God? Now, while you're still looking at the list, here's what I want you to do next. I want you to circle or put a little star next to, mark, however you need to indicate. The differences between who God is versus a quality or characteristic that God embodies, okay? So who God is versus something that God embodies or a characteristic he practices. So just to give you a couple examples, um, in Scripture we see these. Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's speaking to this idea of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a oneness, a uniqueness that's different. God is that, whatever that is. God describes God's self as I am that I am, right? That's what that's describing. Another time, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is something. And then other things God practices, does, expresses, lives out. Does that make sense? Just circle the ones that God is, that the scriptures make very clear that God is that thing. All right, circle those real quick. I'll give you about 20 seconds to do it. And I'm going to guess that one of... The qualities or characteristics you circled is the idea that God is love, and that is the one we're looking at this morning. The text in 1 John 4, 7, and 8 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because why? God is love. God is love. Now, this is one of... The weightiest and most powerful truths imaginable, and that is that God is love. Father, Son, and Spirit operate perfectly together in complete love. It's also de- described this way. Nothing God ever does or ever did or ever will do is separate from the love of God. Love is not accidental or incidental to God. It is an essential revelation of the divine nature of fundamental and eternal perfection. John summarizes all of those ideas with this simple statement, God is love. It is God's very essence. It's not just part of who God is. It is God's essence that God is love now you might be saying why is this important you sound like you're repeating yourself why do you keep doing that because God is both a noun love this idea of God as noun love and also God as verb love okay so God is noun love and verb love don't confuse this for an English class okay But it is those two things simultaneously, meaning that God is love, noun, but God also verbs love, meaning actions love, exhibits love, declares and expresses love. God verbs love. And why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because when we talk about love, there's for some reason we talk about it differently than we do any of the other things. That God is. So, for example, God is holy. Okay, God is holy. God is holy as a noun. Okay? Which means set apart, different, other than, which means God is holy, is his essence. But let me ask you this question, when was the last time that you ever heard anyone say to you, hey, God is holy, or you said to them, I just want you to remember, please do not forget, God is holy. And then their instant response is, well, hold on, on. I know he's holy, but you really need to balance it with God's justice. Or God is holy, but you really, really need to balance that with God's wrath, Or God is really, really holy and I get that, but hey, don't let it stop there because if you stop it there, you're not balancing it with God's truth. And God is those things too. I've never heard that. I've never heard anyone say that to me ever, but here's what I hear a lot when I talk about love. God is love. Oh, yeah, 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 but... Make sure you balance that with God's justice. Well, God is love, but whoa, whoa, hold on, time out, time out, but make sure you balance that with God's truth or with his wrath or with some other expression of who God is. But God's very essence is love. So another way of saying that is this, every Other characteristic of God that you listed on your paper is not placed in balance. It's not rather essence. I'll say that again. Every other characteristic of God that you listed on your paper is not placed in balance. Rather, it is an expression of God's essence, which means God expresses truth, yes, but only through God's love. God expresses attributes of justice, yes, but through God's love. God's goodness is loving. His holiness is loving. His judgments are loving. His omnipresence is loving. His Power and energy and everything about who God is, is loving. His affections and motives and purposes, everything. The only way to express God's many and varied characteristics is through the quality of love. Any and every word on your list is only fulfilled and embodied through the love of God because God is love. As a noun and also he, God, verbs, love. So, pause for just a moment. Jot this down. Quick question. If this is true, that God is love, and all qualities of God are filtered or expressed through that love, how does that change your understanding of God? Does that alter it in any way? Does that cause you to throw out the scale and stop trying to figure out how to balance ideas? So how are you factoring or not factoring into your lived relationship with God and with others this idea that God is love? We're going to go a little further in the text and say, what is love again? because there's a clear definition right after God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through God. The best answer for what love is, is described by Paul as love made manifest or displayed in the gift of Jesus. So Paul is describing, we heard it earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, Well, there is faith, there is hope, there is love, all three abide, but the greatest of all of those is love. Peter puts it another way, above all, love each other deeply, for love covers a multitude of sins. Basically, what Jesus lived and what Paul and Peter are calling us to is and telling us is that love is the most foundational belief of the church. That it is to be placed above all. It should have the preeminence above any and every thing. Augustine said this when speaking of love. Once and for all, I give you this one short command. Love and do what you will. If you hold your peace, hold your peace out of love. If you cry out, cry out in love. If you correct someone, correct them out of love. If you spare them, spare them out of love. Let the root of love be in you. Nothing can spring from it but good. Love and do what you will because everything should flow from love. In our text this morning, Paul described it this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, this divine spiritual intellect, and I have all the faith so as to move mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul is basically saying it doesn't matter how right you think you are, how spiritually gifted you are, how intelligent or wise you are, or even how much faith and service you display, if these aren't accomplished by love, they're worthless. Loving one another should be our highest priority more than any other, more than proving, protecting, enforcing our rightness, more than any other priority in the church. And I would say the church and Christianity has long gotten this wrong, right? We replace this idea of Above all, love with all kinds of other things. Above all, make sure we have correct doctrine and theology. Above all, the right politics. Above all, the correct religious standards. Above all, the right spiritual influence and popularity. Above all, church growth. Above all, church planning. Above all, missions. Above all, whatever. Rarely do we ever say, above all, sacrificing other things, love. Love. Full stop, end there, end of sentence, love. And here's how Paul creates the equation. Correct doctrine minus love equals worthless noise. Correct theology minus love equals noisy gong. Correct politics minus love equals clanging cymbal. Correct religious standards minus love equals you're gaining Nothing. Correct, religious influence and popularity and followership minus love equals zero. Correct, wokeness minus love equals nothing, a big fat pile of nothing. None of it matters if it isn't grounded in love. And so I I think we find all kinds of ways to excuse it, myself included, We even use that balance all over again. Well, yes, it's love, but let me balance it with telling you what you need to know about justice. Let me balance it by making you understand wrath. Let me balance it by making you understand theology or correct belief systems or whatever it is you're desiring to get the other person to know other than love. What I think Paul is getting at in this passage is immaturity and pride that is often found in all of us. Immaturity is often expressed in belittling, exclusionary, and discriminatory actions that cause division rather than unity. That is often fed by pride rather than love because love is inspiring and liberating and sacrificial. And if we take this teaching seriously, it means that nothing, absolutely nothing matters if it, love isn't present, which means that love is more important and the most important idea more than doctrine, theology, value, posture, position, belief, truth, or whatever else. It is love. So Paul goes on to say, if you want to know what that looks like, it looks like this. And sometimes we're so familiar with that, we hear it so often that we go, yeah, that's great, yep, thanks, I understand. That's what it means, perfect. So what I want to do is to play it in reverse so that maybe it will sting a little bit more or cause us to look at it a little bit differently. So it would read like this. Impatience and unkindness is hatred. Hate is envious And egocentric. Hate is arrogant and rude. Hatred is insisting on one's own way. Hatred is irritable or resentful. It celebrates sin and it mocks what is true. Hate is whiny and thin skinned, thoroughly skeptical, always pessimistic, a born quitter. That hurts. To read because it's too personal. It's too close. It's easy to be like, Yeah, I was at a wedding this week and it was great. Oh, what'd they do? Oh, 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Wow, it's patient. It's kind. Do it forever. It's going to be awesome. Right? This rubber meets the road right there. This is hard. That's what community is. It's hard. That's what living a life of faith is. It's hard. It's faith. That's what following the way of Jesus is. It's hard. We must refuse to conserve the Christian structures of the past that are power-oriented, hero-driven, ego-driven, justifiably certain, shaming supremacies that cause so much harm. And instead, we as a community should embody a more humane, generous just regenerative and creative expression of the kingdom in this god-infused world. So I want to pause one last time before our benediction and ask you to think about those two lists 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Corinthians 13 in reverse in your recent interactions with people and the way you've responded with your family, your friends, your coworkers, which of those characteristics has most embodied who you've been? Do they follow the sacrificial, servant-oriented love of the other as demonstrated in the person of Jesus or the opposite? Let me wrap up by saying this before the benediction. Because I think it's important to end our time thinking about this in preparation for kind of part two of this talk next week. The love of God is who you are. Okay, hear that again. The love of God is who you are. God created you in the image of the God who is love, Period. Period. That is the identity of you in Christ. Anything else is illusion. Any other thing you're wrestling with, hearing, struggling with, tempted by, illusion. Rest today in the truth that God is love and God is for. You.